Hello, this is Liam Fitzgerald, uh, and I'm speaking to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Welcome to episode 3.4 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, as well as our friends at 10 Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. It's that time of year again, early season snow, peppers, higher elevation locales, Ski resorts are starting to open, or at least their ski patrol teams are getting refreshed in medical training, lift evacuations, and of course, avalanche rescue. It certainly makes me remember about some close calls and unfortunately worst case scenarios that happened during my patrol refresher years. Uh, I, I tend not to trust these early season snowpacks, not only because your skis, boards, and sleds are that much closer to basal weak layers, but how about them rocks, stumps, and debris of the like? I'd like to remind everyone to treat unopened ski areas just like the backcountry as there's no avalanche mitigation being conducted in these unopened ski areas. As they start to open up, uh, give those folks a break and, and a favor and, and stay out of zones where people are working, preparing those slopes for opening of the ski areas. Keep it in check, folks. There's a long winter ahead. I want to give a little shout out to Primo Snow and Avalanche. Matt Promomo is a guide educator and avalanche forecaster, and he decided that he wasn't happy with the current state of snow saws. Uh, so he started designing and producing the El Professionnel, which is a snow saw that when I first looked at it online, it, it reminded me of the old Lifelink saw that the coveted lifelink saw that's pretty hard to come by these days so i just put my order in this morning go check out what matt has going on at www.primosnowavalanche.com i'm pretty excited to get mine in the mail and and head out and sink it into a snow pit so check it out i'm really excited for this episode since really since the beginning of the podcast i've had a goal of having this be a community-based podcast and for people throughout the community to join the conversation. So with a little soliciting, I feel like this episode embodies that. First off, we'll hear from Dan Caveney, the new executive director of the A3, or the American Avalanche Association. And he's just essentially introducing himself and talking about some of the benefits of the A3 membership. Then we'll hear from Greg Gagne of the Utah Avalanche Center, with an excellent recap of the 2018 ISSW in Innsbruck, Austria. And finally, our main event will hear from Liam Fitzgerald. You know, I've given a couple talks at Snow and Avalanche workshops this fall, mostly about the podcast, but, but part in part about the importance of debriefing and some of the reasons that I, I decided to start this podcast. And Upon reflecting on, on some of the interviews that I've conducted, I really decided that one of my favorite parts was interviewing and recording the thoughts and careers of the older avalanche worker generation. 
Um, and I came up with this idea that I hope that, that in doing so, this can serve as some sort of digital audio mentorship. And so I think this interview with Liam really serves as that. And I hope you, I hope you really enjoy that. But first, like I said, we're going to hear from Dan Caveney, the executive director of A3. So here we go with Dan. This is Dan Caveney. I'm the new executive director of the American Avalanche Association. Thanks so much, Caleb, for inviting me to be a part of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm really excited about it, and I'm looking forward to telling people a little bit more about the American Avalanche Association, or the A3 as we like to call it. The A3 has been keeping people safe in avalanche country since 1986, and we try and focus our efforts on three main areas. Education and professional development is the first, second, publishing, and third, outreach. So let me just take a minute and tell you a little bit about each of these areas. In terms of educational and professional development, we've been doing a tremendous amount of work on the pro-rec split in avalanche education. As your, re- as your listeners may know, um, before the 17-18 season, there was no division between courses taught for professionals and aspiring professionals and courses taught for people who were more interested in recreational avalanche education. So last year was the first season that we had the split. Um, It went great. We have six pro training providers who are doing a great job and, um, you know, we're continuing to administer that program now. Um, This isn't the right venue to get into a lot of detail, but um, it's been an immense project. It's going well, and I think it's already been a significant benefit to the avalanche community. We also sponsor quite a few educational events. So this year we're sponsoring 12 snow and avalanche workshops, which we also attend. Uh, We were a supporting sponsor for the International Snow Science Workshop that was in in Innsbruck, Austria, last October. Um, We sent two of our members, well, we gave two of our members scholarships to attend the ISSW. And every year we offer up to four research grants to A3 members who have interesting research ideas that can push our understanding of avalanches further. In terms of publishing, I I believe that publishing is really the glue that holds the community together, and we do a lot of it. Perhaps the most important publishing we do is the Avalanche Review. It's a journal that we put out four times every winter, and it's got a whole bunch of different things in it. It covers advances in avalanche science, new equipment, uh, news about what's going on in the avalanche community, um, analyses of avalanche accidents that we could all learn from. Basically, it's a magazine about, you know, that if you're interested in avalanches, you probably want to read about this stuff. It's a very popular um part of membership at the A3. We also publish other books, The Snowy Torrents, an analysis of historical avalanche accidents, Snow Weather and Avalanche Observation Guidelines for making good avalanche observations, and I do newsletters, you know, once a month or so. Outreach is another important part of our mission. We want anyone who loves the Winter Mountains 
whether they like to get there on snowmobiles, skis, snowboards, snowshoes, a couple of ice tools, whatever it is. We want people who love the winter mountains to know that they have to learn a, bit, a little bit about avalanches to stay safe. And so outreach is our mission there. We do a lot of outreach over social media. Uh, and perhaps the most important partnership in this regard that we have is with the U.S. Forest Service National Avalanche Center, and with whom we work on avalanche.org website, that uh, where you can go and get avalanche conditions all over the country in one easy place. There's good educational materials up there, and there are also some analyses of, of accidents. So we're recruiting new members, and we'd love to have you all join. You can, you can be a member as a professional, an affiliate member, and those are usually aspiring professionals or people who don't have quite enough experience to be pros, or general members are just people who are interested about avalanches. You know, I've talked to a lot of members, and some of whom have been members since, you know, the 1980s. And really, when I ask them why they want to do it, is they always, their answer always has something to do with being a part of it. You know, they, they like what we do, they want to be a part of the Avalanche community, they want to know what's going on, they want to support all these efforts. And, you know, being a member of the A3 is one way that they can do it. There are also tangible benefits. We do offer discounts from our sponsors on gear periodically. Um, we have contests for our members. Uh, like We've given away three backpacks so far this year from our sponsors. Uh, and members are eligible for things like scholarships and grants that other people aren't. Um, so anyway, give it some thought. Um, the best way to join is to go to the AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org and follow the membership prompts. Uh, or you can write to join at avalanche.org and it will kick you back an email from me that gives you some information that you can use to join. Or if you have questions or anything, you just want to chat about it, please get in touch. I can be reached at dan at avalanche.org. So thanks. We hope to hear from you. Just to echo some of what Dan was saying, I think it's super important to be tied into this community through a, either a professional or affiliate membership with the A3. Um, and you get the Avalanche Review, which is key to keeping up to date of, of what's going on, aside from listening to your Avalanche Hour podcast. All right, big shout out to Ten Barrel Brewing. Check out their Pray for Snow ski and snowboard movie. Tour dates are available on their website. Also, check out the new Mountain Pack Mixer. The Mountain Pack is sure to be a tailgate hit after a great day in the snow. It's got the Cloud Chaser IPA, which is in cahoots with Mount Bachelor, Hollin the Fallen Brown Ale with tribute to Sun Valley, and Roller Pass Session IPA straight out of Sugar Bowl. And you never know what else you might find in those Mountain Packs. Cause I've got a golden ticket I've got a golden chance to make my way And with a golden ticket it's a golden day Alright, and now we're going to hear from Greg Gagne of the Utah Avalanche Center. Take it away, Greg. My name is Greg Gagne and I'm a forecaster with the Utah Avalanche Center, or UAC, in the Salt Lake City office. 
I also teach avalanche awareness classes for the UAC, as well as other organizations along the Wasatch Front. This past October, I was joined by our Executive Director, Chad Brecklesburg, in representing the UAC at ISSW 2018 in beautiful Innsbruck, Austria. This was my first ISSW, so I have nothing to compare it to, but several ISSW veterans told me this was one of the better ones. This was quite a week with four days of talks, poster presentations, workshops, sandwiching a day-long field trip of your choice on Wednesday of ISSW week. I also found the networking with international forecasters, guides, and researchers to be really useful, and I'm already excited for Fernie in 2020. In the next 10 minutes or so, I'd like to highlight a few different poster presentations and talks that I found especially valuable, and I'd like to thank Caleb for this opportunity. There are so many good topics to choose from, but the three I have chosen represent what I find valuable from the perspective of a forecaster, educator, and recreationalist traveling in avalanche terrain. Before I begin, a disclaimer. This work is my summary of these posters and talks. Any errors, misinterpretations, or misrepresentations are my responsibility and not those of the original author. First up is a poster titled, Are You Sharp While Ascending? presented by a group from the Arctic University of Norway. This poster highlighted the results of their research question, which asks if an elevated heart rate affects our cognitive ability to process information. More generally, if you're working hard in the skin track and your heart rate is in overdrive, does it affect your ability to make rational decisions in avalanche terrain? Some of you may have read the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's become somewhat popular in avalanche circles as of late. In that book, Kahneman highlights two types of thinking. System one, which is our fast, intuitive, emotional, reactive thinking. And system two, which is slower, deliberative, and more logical. Hopefully it's obvious to you that when traveling in avalanche terrain, we want to be in system two thinking. But the results of their experiment indicated that when we have an elevated heart rate, we're more like system one thinkers. And those that kept their heart rates below a certain threshold had better abilities for rational system two thinking. I'm an avid backcountry skier and love the physical exertion of being in the skin track. But the take home message for me was that being fit is not only a healthy lifestyle choice, but also a safety choice as it hopefully helps me make better decisions when traveling in avalanche terrain. So don't throw away that schemo gear and instead use it to get more fit. One of the paper presentations I was particularly excited to hear was by Pascal Hagley, a researcher at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, BC. In the past, Pascal has looked at the effectiveness of airbags, and his presentation at ISSW asked the question, do avalanche airbags lead to riskier choices in the backcountry? Pascal's earlier research at avalanche incident statistics showed that for an individual caught in an avalanche of size 2 or larger, an inflated airbag reduces your chances of dying from 22% to 11%. In other words, it reduces your chance of dying in an avalanche that could otherwise kill you by 50%. When non-inflations are taken into account, it reduces the mortality risk from 22% to 13%, or slightly less than half. Numbers such as this support the effectiveness of airbags and explains their relative popularity. I've been wearing an airbag for seven seasons and have made the choice that my airbag pack is my only ski pack. That is, I do not have a lighter pack that I wear on low hazard days, as I think it becomes a slippery slope of when you take or do not take your airbag. At ISSW, Pascal highlighted his research question, which asks, do avalanche airbags lead to risk compensation or risk homeostasis? That is, does safety gear negate its effect by leading us to take chances we wouldn't otherwise take? 
Spoiler alert, the results of Pascal's research was inconclusive, but suggests a possible level of risk compensation is present. Like all good research questions, this study just promotes further research. For me, the possibility of risk homeostasis was enough. What I found useful from it was that for those that use an airbag, you should take a personal inventory and ask yourself if your behavior has been influenced by use of your airbag. For those considering purchasing an airbag, it's worth honestly asking yourself if you feel the airbag is just providing you an increase in safety or is giving you an additional license to travel on slopes you wouldn't have otherwise ridden. Pascal concluded his presentation saying that the possibility of risk homeostasis with gear such as airbags should be included in avalanche awareness classes and any time the use and effectiveness of airbags is discussed. The poster I just mentioned, Are You Sharp While Ascending, highlights the bigger topic of using planning and decision-making tools that allow you to make objective decisions while in the backcountry and not risk falling into one of the heuristic traps such as those outlined in Ian McCammon's Facets. One presentation by Laura McGuire, a cognitive research scientist working on a PhD at The Ohio State University, has received quite a bit of recognition. Laura's premise is that information gathering in avalanche terrain and then making forecasting decisions is hard, and we need to look at successful operations and formalize their practices. On the November 1st Avalanche Hour podcast, Greg Cunningham of Kirkwood Mountain Resort included a discussion of Laura's work in his ISSW summary, and I'll recommend listeners check out that podcast for further details if they haven't already done so. And for those interested in primary resources, Montana State archives all ISSW papers where you can read Laura's paper. I'd like to cover another interesting presentation by James Floyer of Avalanche Canada, where he discussed Danger Radar, a tool for estimating avalanche danger in areas with no public avalanche forecast. This tool is more easily described visually, but I'll do my best. Avalanche skills training courses taught by Avalanche Canada use the evaluator for identifying and navigating backcountry terrain based upon the five-scale North America danger rating. For areas with no public avalanche forecast, evaluator cannot be used. Danger rater is intended to fill that gap and provide people who have completed avalanche skills training with a tool to assign an overall hazard rating for planning a day tour. DangerRater is a decision tree flowchart and begins with the underlying assumption the hazard rating is considerable. You then ask the question, is there critical loading or critical warming? Critical loading is defined as 30 cms or more of new snow or significant wind transport in a 24-hour period up to the end of your travel day. Critical warming is a rapid rise in the temperature of the upper snowpack to 0 C due to warming or rain. If the answer to either of these questions is yes, the avalanche hazard is high. If the answer is no to both of these questions, you then ask if there has been recent loading in the past 48 hours, slab avalanches yesterday or today, or a persistent slab problem. If the answer to each of these three questions is no, the hazard is moderate. If you are unable to answer any one of these three questions, or the answer is yes to any one of them, the hazard remains at considerable. To highlight, with DangerRater, the overall hazard will either be moderate, considerable, or high. The obvious question is why no low or extreme, and there's a few reasons. One is to keep the tool simple. Incorporating low or extreme would have added a layer of complexity. 
In addition, the feeling is that determining the hazard is low may require advanced avalanche training beyond a basic avalanche skills training course. In regards to extreme, the feeling is that people didn't respond to an extreme hazard rating any differently than high. What I really like about Danger Raider is that it jives with the message I provide in avalanche courses that I teach, an attitude of the glass is half empty view of the snowpack. Assume it is unsafe and then gather data that tells you otherwise. If you are unable to gather such data, you continue to behave as if the snowpack is inherently unstable. I also like that it promotes gathering information that is particularly relevant to assessing the snowpack, the type of skills we want to promote for increasing one's ability to evaluate snowpack stability. The presentation also compared the hazard rating applied by DangerRater to an area with public forecasting. Over the course of an entire winter season, DangerRater had the same hazard rating nearly 60% of the time and overpredicted a little more than 30% of the time. When the early and late season are eliminated, DangerRater had the same hazard rating as the public forecast nearly 70% of the time. This was largely due to overpredicting the effects of warming. I think the biggest weakness of DangerRater is the significance of the warming factor and that the tool may not work so well with, say, strong sunshine even in midwinter. But I do see the appeal of this tool and its overall value. Be sure to set aside your schedules for October 2020 in Fernie, the next ISSW. I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Greg. I've added a link to the MSU archive of all the ISSW papers in the show notes. So be sure to check that out and check out some of those, those papers that Greg was talking about. I was excited to get to catch up with Liam Fitzgerald in Montana this fall. This was an unplanned interview, so I really appreciated his time and willingness to share some thoughts. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Here we go with Liam. Um, my professional avalanche career began in the fall of 1968 when I somehow managed to land a job on the Squaw Valley Ski Patrol. The interesting thing about me getting the job is that I really couldn't ski. Uh, I had uh, moved to the mountains uh, the previous spring from uh, the Santa Cruz area in California and had never really seen snow prior to that time. Um, I moved in with some ski patrollers that I knew from the beach who worked at Squaw and they let me sleep on their couch and taught me how to ski in uh, about a 28-day period. Uh, fairly intense, but uh, the, uh, the, my level of uh, expertise was uh, not particularly high. Um, the next fall, uh, this would have been in the spring of 1968, the next fall, uh, one of those same people... Um, uh, convinced the ski patrol director of Squaw Valley that I should be given a job, and they must have been really desperate because they hired me. Uh, I was one of uh, several new guys that got hired that year, and the fact that I couldn't ski was uh, masked over by the uh, very intense winter of 1968-69, which uh, saw abundant snowfall, especially in the Tahoe area. So most all the time we were uh, doing avalanche control work and I would be slogging through the snow uh, carrying bombs and uh, 
didn't have to ski all that much, uh, especially the first couple of months. Um, I went from Squaw Valley to uh, Utah, where I was hired to uh, work on the crew, uh, building the tram and the chairlifts for the soon-to-open Snowbird ski area. Uh, The one thing I knew about Little Cottonwood Canyon is that uh, it snowed a lot, and there were a lot of powder skiing and a lot of avalanches, two things that were really important to me in my life at that time. Uh, We had a very rough start at Snowbird, uh, opening day. Someone was buried for an hour uh, in an avalanche, recovered alive, thankfully, and then the following week, uh, there was another avalanche in an open area that caught and injured two women. Uh, it was shortly after uh, we opened that initial season, it was decided that someone needed to do just the avalanche control uh, aspect of the m- managing the mountain, and I was given that job. Once again, quite unqualified for the position, but uh, I had some very good mentors who had... Uh, spent their careers in Alta uh, dealing with snow and avalanches for the several decades before Snowbird opened, and they took me under their wing. Um, spent uh, 27 years as the uh, in charge of the uh, snow safety program at Snowbird, and then in uh, 1998, I was hired by the Utah Department of Transportation to uh, manage the uh, avalanche control program for UDOT, and specifically in uh, Little Cottonwood Canyon. I worked there for another 16 years and uh, retired uh, just about four years ago on uh, Halloween of 2014, and I currently live uh, on Lake Pondere in North Idaho. Well, that's quite the resume there, Liam, and um, you know, I was I was pretty excited to be at the Northern Rockies Snow and Avalanche Workshop and and look in the back row and see you sitting there. And so when you see Liam Fitzgerald sitting in a room, uh, you got to corner him in a in a dark corner and and get him to sit down and talk to you, especially if you produce a podcast. Um, thanks for introducing yourself there. And I was hoping we could dive into a talk that I heard you give last year at Utah Snow and Avalanche Workshop about. What you would essentially what you would tell your younger self, your younger avalanche professional self, from based on what you know now and the, and the experiences that you've accumulated over your career. Well, the profession that I chose that uh, is the same as probably many of your listeners have chosen uh, sort of um, uh, means that you will. There's a hundred percent chance that you're going to make mistakes. Um, and more often than not, uh, you're going to get away with the mistakes without uh, disastrous consequences. But uh, there is a strong possibility that if you do make some sort of error in judgment, uh, that uh, you will be the one paying the price, or perhaps even you know more serious, other people will be paying the the price of your uh, underestimation. Um, because there's so much room for error, uh, the the learning curve is is very steep and lengthy. And uh, interestingly enough, at the end of my career, I found myself making 
uh, many of the same mistakes that I had made when I started out uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and I think that uh, if you can slow down the process at, at all and uh, consider uh, objectively and rationally what is going on, you have a much better chance of avoiding some of those bad decisions and the consequences that may be the result. Um, I was very fortunate, as I said earlier, to have had uh, older and wiser people um, that sort of shepherd me, shepherded me along for the first year or so of my uh, position of responsibility there in Little Cottonwood Canyon at Snowbird. And uh, that was extremely fortunate because had they not been there, uh, well, for one, I probably, I, I might not be here today. And secondly, I probably wouldn't have uh, had the long, been lucky enough to have had the long career that I did. So they played a big role in, uh, in my um, choosing the path that I did. And I think it's important for those of us who have been lucky enough to do this for a long period of time to try to pass on uh, what we have learned most of the time from painful mistakes uh, to the others who are going to be exposed to the same likelihood of making those same mistakes over and over again uh, as I was. And, you know, hopefully, even if you can just uh, tell someone that's going to help them out on one particular incident in, in their the, their entire professional career, that's probably a very worthwhile thing. Um, there's a lot of things that can trip you up uh, when you're making decisions that uh, uh, based on um, a lot of variables on which people's lives depend. And you can never try to be too smart about things. Uh, try to distill uh, the information that you're using to make your decision down to a, uh, a reasonable level that's something that is understandable and explainable and uh, something that you can perceive in your mind without too much difficulty. Um, Try to make these important decisions without a whole lot of ego uh, coming into play because uh, that's a very dangerous trap that unfortunately we can all fall into, uh, some more than others. But uh, uh, once again, remaining consistently rational and objective uh, is one of the keys to being able to survive and to, to be successful in what you're trying to do. Uh, another important thing that I have learned is uh, um, when you do make a mistake, and uh, it's obvious to everyone that has happened, um, to uh, not let guilt and self-recrimination cripple you because um, those are the times when you're going to be your leadership is going to be needed uh, the most and to uh, remain in that leadership position and try to uh, lead yourself, your team, and the rest of the public out of harm's way and into a, uh, a, 
a reasonable resolution of the problem. If you are uh, ridden with guilt and, and feeling sorry for yourself and how could things go so wrong, uh, you're going to be uh, not operating at, at the highest level which is needed in situations like this. Um, you don't want to be in too big a hurry. Uh, um, even though everyone is expecting you to uh, have decisions made in a timely manner, um, you have to make it those decisions on your time frame, not necessarily theirs. Uh, you have to remember that no one is probably paying as close attention to the situation as you and the team that you work with are and to uh, give yourself the time to make the right decision because once a decision is made, uh, it's often much more difficult to turn things around and start heading in an opposite direction. Um, listen carefully to uh, what people have to say, but remember that uh, their agendas may be a little bit different from yours uh, and, and uh, make sure their advice is, uh, is objective and not subjective. Um, Liam, could you talk about uncertainty in your in in your forecast and how you dealt with uncertainty throughout your career, um, and did that get easier? And and what margins as a forecaster for both snowbird um, or any skiria and a highway? What margins could you utilize to deal with that uncertainty in your forecast? Um, well, unless there are avalanches running down all around you, uh, hitting the road, hitting buildings, hitting your group of ski touring buddies, uh, uh, almost all other situations other than that, uh, has a degree of uncertainty. And that's really a big part of what avalanche forecasters deal with. I think though, if you were... If you're good at what you do, and you do it long enough, uh, and you're lucky, um, you will gain a bit of confidence over time. Um, you certainly don't want to become overconfident, but it will success over or some degree of success over a long period of time will enable you to be a little more comfortable with making difficult decisions. Um, certainly if you get a number, if you get, uh, smacked hard several times in a row early on in your career, you might decide to, uh, choose another, uh, profession. But if you are lucky enough to, uh, you know, get a base hit and, uh, and make the right decision, uh, enough times, uh, throughout your career, the longer you do it, um, the easier it gets to uh, at least accept the responsibility for what you're trying to do. Uh, you will never stop making mistakes, um, but they will probably be less frequent the longer uh, you try to do something like this. Um, and you know you have to you have to you have to believe in yourself and what you're doing and. And the, the methods that you are using to make your decisions, um, 
I think that if you're using a Ouija board or some far-fetched uh, theory um, to make decisions that affect other people, you're probably uh, making a grave mistake. If you rely on sound fundamentals that have been uh, used successfully for the past hundred years or so, um, you're probably going to be more likely to have success. But you never, I don't think, ever escape that, uh, that, that uncertainty and that feeling that you might be making the wrong choice. Uh, you just try to um, reduce the possibility of making an error as much as possible, but you understand that um, you're never going to be, you're never going to bat a thousand. But if you bat 300 for your entire life, you get in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> there you have it. Um, Liam, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the evolution of the forecasting program and the mitigation program in Little Cottonwood Canyon during your, your time there. Of course, for my listeners, you know, you could you could review back to the first episode in the second season, 2.1, where we talked to Bill Nally, who... who who took over your position after you left UDOT. Um, so Bill talks about some of the kind of future plans, especially in Little Cottonwood, but I was hoping you could recount kind of a, a brief history of the program within Little Cottonwood. Well, uh, as most people know, uh, avalanches have been a part of life in Little Cottonwood Canyon since ever since people started living there in the 1880s. The town of Alto was uh, destroyed or damaged on numerous occasions with uh, significant lo loss of life. Uh, the current town of Alta sits in the same place um, as the historic one did. So uh, were it not for the uh, avalanche mitigation work that's carried out by UDOT above the town of Alta, um, the town would be subject to a lot more disasters and would probably look considerably different than it does. Um, it avalanche research in uh, North America began in Little Cottonwood Canyon at Alta in the 1940s. And I think that um, spirit of uh, acknowledging the, the extent of the problem and the willingness to try to uh, improve the program to... Uh, more effectively deal with the existing problem is what has driven the, you know, the progress that's been made in the last 70 odd years. Um, most people understand the story of, uh, you know, our, the idea of using artillery for, uh, to initiate avalanches was introduced uh, by Monty Atwater, who had served in the 10th Mountain Division during World War II and had been hired by the Forest Service. Uh, at uh, to be the snow ranger at Alta uh, at the end of World War II. And so his uh, understanding that artillery uh, could be used effectively to uh, deal with the avalanche situation in Alta um, began quite early on. Uh, it certainly was rather um, a little bit primitive and limited in the early days, but uh, over time it... Uh, it, it was evolved to uh, a program where the weapons were placed very strategically in locations where they could reach a maximum number of targets. Um, indirect blind fire uh, procedures were developed so the weapons could be used regardless of visibility. And uh, 
they became an extremely effective tool for um, reducing the avalanche hazard uh, in Little Cottonwood Canyon in particular, and that certainly that uh, practice has spread elsewhere and, and been very successful also. Um, there certainly is a um, concern that uh, firing uh, weapons of uh, destruction that are designed to kill people and blow things up uh, in a peacetime situation is a, um, a, a, a strong point to consider. And because of uh, that, uh, th those issues, um, especially in places where the high density population like Salt Lake Valley and, uh, and Little Cottonwood Canyon, uh, there's been a definite move over the past uh, 10 years or so to uh, try these remote uh, avalanche control devices uh, in to replace military weapons. And they seem to be fairly... Uh, that's, that, that transition is, is obviously is successful. They certainly haven't replaced the artillery uh, in Little Cottonwood Canyon yet, but they are uh, certainly used in certain areas where they're uh, going to be um, most valuable. Uh, that's where they, they've been located so far. Um, there certainly has been a big and vast improvement in the gathering of... Uh, um, Meteorological, meteor, meteorological data that goes into the uh, developing an avalanche hazard forecast, uh, remote weather stations that are uh, placed in really great spots to record whatever uh, um, input you're looking for, whether it's wind speed and direction or snowfall, precipitation intensity, uh, any of these things that can be, they t uh, are quite reliable now and can, uh, be located at a number of remote sites and received at the avalanche forecast office with um, on-demand, uh, real-time data and with great reliability. Um, there are other things as well, uh, such as uh, there's the uh, um, uh, the infrasonic avalanche detection system that was installed by UDOT in about 2007, I believe. Uh, it over the years it has um, become one of the, at least by the time I left one of the more valuable tools and most uh, s significant improvements to the program that uh, had occurred over the last uh, forty or fifty years. Uh, it's a it, their uh, acoustic measuring sensors that uh, um, analyze sound waves that come through the air and determine if through software uh, analysis, if those, the, the sound waves are being produced by an avalanche, if so, where they're coming from, the, uh, the magnitude of the event, and um, if, if it reaches the road or not. Uh, this gives you a really good idea as, as to the onset of a natural avalanche cycle, as well as the results from uh, control work that, that you wouldn't be able to see because of bad weather uh, otherwise. Um, uh, there are other devices that are being used now since I, I left that I think are along those same lines um, that go into the, uh, you know, aiding the forecaster in uh, getting the information they need to make decisions. The other side of the coin is the more stuff you have, the more work you have to do to 
uh, keep it running and uh, remove it in the spring and put it back up in the fall. And uh, you don't want to have so much stuff that you have to deal with that you're not getting out and looking at the snow and making determinations that are going to be extremely necessary in making your decisions in the future. Um, I think that uh, any highway forecast program needs to have um, uh, people who are capable and willing uh, to travel into avalanche starting zones or nearby near to avalanche starting zones and analyze the snow on a very regular basis, even though it's certainly much more difficult than you would have in a skiery operation, but it's uh, perhaps even more important in a highway uh, avalanche forecasting scenario. Um, the, the thing that hasn't changed probably is the fact that it uh, takes a certain kind of person to do the job. Um, uh, the fellow who took my job as lead forecaster for the canyon uh, was uh, Matt McKee. He has since left and gone to uh, become the forecaster for the Alaska Railroad, and now a fellow named Damian Jackson is in charge. And um, all the most all the people that have been in the part of that program uh, and have been somewhat the same type of individual. I mean, I think that uh, you have to be able to operate in extremely stressful uh, situations. You need to be able to uh, get along well with other people and to be a good listener. And um, you need to be willing to have to be willing to uh, work as hard as you need to, whether that's like, many hours a day for many days in a row um, to keep things, you know, more or less on the safe side. Uh, the numbers of people involved in the program has certainly changed. Uh, when I first came to the canyon, there were uh, like two or three forecasters. Uh, now there's, I think, about five or six. It certainly makes the job easier, and especially with the added burden of all the technology that these folks have to uh, deal with now, it certainly helps to have more uh, hands and feet and eyes. Yep. So Little Cottonwood has a has an avalanche hazard index of over a thousand, which is pretty much off the charts. And the AHI is a factor of exposure and vulnerability um, to come up with that risk factor. How did how did you deal with that? I, I imagine there were plenty of sleepless nights. Um, maybe just talk about that if you don't mind. Yeah, there were a lot of sleepless nights. Um, with a highway avalanche forecast, um, you need to make decisions uh, that run out several hours, 10, 12 hours into the future. Uh, and as we all know, a lot can change in 10 or 12 hours and during a storm in the mountains. And so if you open the road in Little Cottonwood Canyon at 6 a.m. in the morning, there may be 6,000 vehicles that travel up to the resorts. And because it's a dead-end road, they all have to get back down at the end of the day. And during that time period, lots of things can change. So you need to be uh, 
have information that can allow you to look into the future a little bit. And then you always have to stay well on the uh, side of being, you know, uh, uh, on the conservative side, uh, which sort of flies in the face of uh, the uh, business model that the ski resorts are looking for. Um, They uh, would like the road to be closed only when it is obviously dangerous, but for the avalanche and the uh, the avalanche forecaster and the forecast crew uh, needs a much wider berth in which to operate because of all the uncertainties that we talked about earlier. Um, it's uh, opening the road in the morning is a big decision, and it can't be made uh, lightly, uh, taken lightly. It's uh, it's a lot of things. Um, go into that decision and um, oftentimes I found that I had made a decision at uh, 4 a.m. in the morning that by 4 p.m. in the afternoon I really regretted and that uh, but it had been my decision and uh, I had allowed the situation to develop where I felt that there were thousands of people that were uh, at risk of uh, that they were in danger, and that that's a that's probably one of the reasons why uh, the careers of most of the people that do that sort of job in that particular place are not all that long. I would guess that mine has been was one of the longer ones. Um, but the, yeah, that uh, if if an avalanche reaches the road while it's open uh, on a busy day. It's just about the worst possible scenario uh, because uh, immediately um, the road turns into a several mile long parking lot and there are 20, 40, 60, 80, whatever vehicles that are now stationary underneath 35 other avalanche paths that may be primed for a natural release just like the one that reached the road uh, or perhaps larger. Uh, and it's um, can become an unmanageable and very dangerous situation uh, very quickly. So trying to stay ahead of that curve and to uh, shut the road down when you, before you think that event is going to happen, because once it happens, you're, it's too late. Then you are in a truly dire situation with lots of people exposed to, uh, um, you know, a serious hazard. And, uh, yeah, so making the decision early to close the road, even if it means stranding hundreds of people at the resorts or causing the resorts to lose tens of thousands of dollars, uh, it's a, a tough decision, but it's the good one. And I think everyone always needs to remember that the road is open a lot more than it's closed. Absolutely. Liam, I was wondering if you'd be willing to recount a, a near miss or an accident that's that's kind of stuck in your mind, um, whether you were just out backcountry skiing or, or at work, um, that, that maybe the rest of the community could, could learn from. Um, sure. I think that, uh, it would have been, um, I think January 2011, I think, I think that, uh, I, 
I might be wrong on the year there, but I think that's what it was. It had been a very dry uh, winter up to that point in the Wasatch, and there had been there was relatively no snow on the southerly facing slopes, at least not in uh, in the mid canyon uh, below Snowbird, at least not enough to cause a, a grave concern. Um, a very intense storm came in on that date and uh, snowed during the day and then increased in uh, intensity considerably once it got dark. Uh, because of the uh, lack of uh, snow on the, in the mid-canyon south-facing slopes, um, we, uh, as a group, and in me in particular, made the assumption that uh, there wasn't enough snow there to cause a problem. Uh, the only place there had been a problem in the preceding weeks had been on the northerly facing slopes. In particular, uh, at least the ones that affect the highway are in one particular location uh, that's known to uh, known as Blackjack. It's between Alta and Snowbird. And we had been doing control work there and had had uh, very good results uh, the day before uh, or one or two days before the, the storm of the 11th. Uh, as the storm came in with great intensity, um, we our desire to uh, believe that there was not enough snow uh, and on the south-facing slopes uh, was what drove us to make the decision to leave the road open, which was a grave mistake. Uh, there was a natural avalanche occurred. Uh, thankfully, after most of the traffic had been out gotten out of the canyon it was a fairly small avalanche but we realized with the intensity of the storm we needed to close the road immediately uh, this also would prompted us to close what's referred to as interlodge travel or travel between the two resorts so that everyone has to get inside and they're on basically on lockdown uh, so people were walking uh, from snowbird up towards alta uh, underneath the blackjack area which, once again, mistakenly, we had thought that because of the results we had had uh, a day or two earlier, that was going to be okay, at least for the next hour until we could get that part of the uh, canyon shut down. Uh, an avalanche released, very a, a significant one came down, covered the road uh, about 150 feet wide and six to eight feet deep, right in the spot where uh, maybe 10 minutes before we had no, seen, observed uh, a dozen or so pedestrians walking up the road. So it seemed like there was a pretty good chance someone have been, would have been caught. Um, so one avalanche reaching the road while it's open uh, is really, I considered a, you know, a pretty significant failure. Two avalanches reaching the road while it was open in the same night, I was pretty much uh, um, it blew me away, and uh, I think that was one of the uh, an event where I was somewhat paralyzed over the fact that I was uh, felt quite a bit of guilt about not taking action much more quickly, and the fact that I underestimated the problem so much. Uh, as it turned out, no one was caught. Uh, once again, uh, luck and timing uh, save the day, which it usually does. Uh, and uh, yeah, we survived that one. But it was a perfect example of how the, my underestimating of the hazard in one of the final years of my career was much the same as it was uh, during the early days of my working at Snowbird. Mm. How did you? How did you deal with? Um 
learning from that with your team and, and maybe talk about the process that you would use to debrief with, with the other forecasters that you work with to develop that um, close call into a learning opportunity? Well, that particular one, I think, uh, was a really strong lesson for me that if you're supposed to be the guy in charge, that uh, you can't, you know, turn into a puddle of jello uh, when things go really wrong. You have to step up and stay in charge and make sure that everything is done right, which I I didn't do for... Uh, you know, several minutes on into the rescue, which was a, a big mistake on my part because that could have been the difference between life or death. I think that that was the lesson I tried to impart upon people is that, you know, you, you got to, when the shit hits the fan, that's when you need to be at the top of your game. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and not letting uh, uh, your desire to uh, not have to make an unpopular closure uh, override your um, observations that it is snowing and blowing really hard and that uh, almost regardless of what conditions were like before the storm uh, started, that an avalanche hazard is building very quickly and you need to realize that. It's it's funny when you think someone who had done this work for almost 50 years would not look at what was happening and go, oh, okay. This is what you learn in your first avalanche class is when wind's blowing and snowing really hard, there's going to be avalanches. Um, but, you know, the, you, you kind of tend to uh, justify your actions based on a lot of things sometimes that don't really matter rather than paying attention to the basics and the fundamentals and acting upon that. Mm. Well, that's certainly very good advice, Liam, and and I think the whole community community could could take away um, some nuggets of that. Um, any other words of wisdom for the community or for younger avalanche workers? Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting today to hear Dave or listen to Dave Hamry. Uh, I've you know known Dave for uh, I don't know forty five or so years, and um, his uh, one of his rules is of not skiing places of high consequence. Uh, I think that I follow that same rule myself. And uh, um, I skied in the backcountry for for a long time and had a, a lot of great experiences. And um, I've oftentimes been astounded at the line that some people take uh, and how they can be so sure that it's not going to avalanche because some places that people ski, even if a they're a small avalanche, will uh, be enough to take you on a ride that you can't survive. Um, I think that uh, you know a lot of people do make a living out of skiing uh, extremely uh, steep, rugged, uh, almost unimaginable terrain. Um, and those that do it for a long time must have a really acute sense of uh, what the level of stability is, more so than most human beings have, I think more so than I have. Uh, and because of I'm, I'm not that confident with my ability to know 100% or at least 99.99% that something is not going to avalanche, I choose not to go to the gnarliest, most radical places and um, 
you know, choose the uh, those slopes that have a little bit less consequence because um, in the end it's all about longevity and you want to be able to do this sort of thing for a long time. Yes, it's certainly all about the long game and, and like you said, utilizing more conservative terrain or at least terrain progression to work your way yeah. into more complex terrain I think is very sage advice. I agree. Well, Liam, I appreciate your time, and uh, this was a spur-of-the-moment interview. I'm really glad I got to catch up with you. Yeah, happy to be a part of it, and uh, thanks for uh, grabbing a hold of me. All right, cheers. Okay. There you have it, Liam Fitzgerald, everyone. Thank you so much, Liam, for your thoughts on your career and experiences. And and I know those thoughts are very valuable to the community. So thanks for everything that you've done in your career and um, being such a, a pillar and a mentor to so many people. TAS Gazex has been keeping highways and ski areas safe all over the world. There are more and more of their remote avalanche control systems, whether they're the Gazex, Daisy Bell, or the Obelex being implemented throughout the Western U.S. If you want to learn more, check out www.tas.fr. Don't worry, it's in English. Even more than that, they're such a vital sponsor of so many other events and entities within the community, such as Snow and Avalanche Workshops, A3 Publications, and ISSWs. Thank you, TAS Gazix, for everything you do. I want to put in a plug for folks that might have stories of close calls or near misses, or accidents, or just good decision-making in the backcountry, please get in touch with me. You can email me at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com or find a link to a contact form on the website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Join the conversation. Music today was performed by Sun Squabby. You heard their new single, Night Moth. Check them out as well as check out Grammatic. Grammatic's taking us out here with No Way Out. Check those guys out on SoundCloud or iTunes. Buy their albums. Good stuff. If you're appreciating this podcast, please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to. Could be iTunes, could be Stitcher Radio, Google Play. I think we're now on Spotify. If there's any Spotify listeners out there, try and listen to this podcast on Spotify. And let me know if you can't find it, because I'd, I'd like to be there. But please rate and review us. It really does help. I hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving next week with friends and family. And please remember what's really important out there, spending time with the ones you love. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.